Hey there, welcome to Takeaway with Sam Okus, a podcast from Nation's Restaurant News. I am Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief here at NRN, and this is the show where I give you an all-access pass to the restaurant industry's most influential decision makers. This week I'm talking with Chris Westcott. He is the CEO of Iron Hill Brewery and Restaurant, a full-service operation with 21 locations across five states. Iron Hill has been offering craft beers and scratch cooking now for for about 27 years, but it recently overhauled its menu with 30 new dishes as it refines its post-pandemic operation to better create a high-quality experience. Chris joined the podcast to talk about how Iron Hill is tapping into the potential of both its brewery and restaurant businesses and how it's building a base of loyal customers in each community that it moves into. In this conversation, you will learn more about how restaurants can combat the negative perception around chains, why your menu should not just meet the low bar set by your competitors, why kids should be not should not be forgotten in your loyalty efforts, and why you shouldn't confuse service and hospitality. Jumping now into my interview with Iron Hill CEO, Chris Westcott. Also, don't forget to stick around after the interview as I will share my eight takeaways from this discussion, actionable insights that you can take with you on the go. All right, I'm here with Chris Westcott, the CEO of Iron Hill. Chris, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Iron Hill, a brewery and a restaurant, which means it is checking two of my biggest boxes. So I'm very happy to talk to you. Um, but Chris, what is Iron Hill all about? I know it's been around almost 30 years now, but what's the story mm-hmm. of this brand? Well, you know, it, uh, it came out of uh, three guys that were avid home brewers and uh, not really digging what they were doing in life and decided, hey, maybe we can make a go of this back in the late 90s. Um, and um, they uh, really began to put a business model together. And, um, you know, we've been following a lot of the elements of that business plan as we've grown. Um, you know, the, the, they went through some, some, you know, reasonably strong growth for, uh, you know, neophytes in the business and, and um found their way to some really interesting locations, uh, all of which we continue to operate today. And, you know, Iron Hill is a uh, is a really interesting blend of, you know, craft brewing and scratch cooking and great food and great beer and, and blending, uh, you know, the experiences together. And, uh, you know, we, we are finding our way, you know, doing that in the ever-changing environment that we do business in. And, and it's a it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to stand behind the product and know where it all came from, and, and that we control so much of what we sell. We're not we're not into wine. We're not into spirits. But other than that, we control you know everything that we uh, that we put on the table and, and share with our guests. And um, it's uh, it's a pretty rewarding brand uh, for those of us that, that choose to work with it because we get to do some things that are not cookie cutter. They're not formulaic. Uh, there's a lot of creativity uh, in the brewery, a lot of creativity in the kitchens. And, um, you know, we were constantly trying to find a way to, you know, get people to come and visit us with greater frequency. That's what it's all about. Sure. Yeah. You know, once upon a time, I thought it would be the best job in the world to work at a brewery. So, uh, <laughs> so you have one of the best jobs in the world. I, I stand by it. Um, there are some perks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my gut would probably disagree, but you know, yeah. anyway, other than that, you know, two things I think is really interesting about Iron Hill's sort of origin, you know, first is that being, having been started in the mid nineties, 
way ahead of the craft brewery boom, which kind of came mm-hmm. around, call it 2008, 9, 10, and, and later on. Um, but the second thing is when they opened officially as a business, they opened as a restaurant out of the gates, not just a craft brewery. I'm right. curious about that decision from the founders, what you've sort of gleaned from them about why it was so important really from the get-go to pair both brewery and restaurant. Well, I, I just think that there was a passion for both, and they they didn't want to sacrifice one for the other. And, you know, the, the belief was that um, certainly people enjoy – um, you know, the, the beer aspects of the business, the bar aspects of the business. But some of the most successful bars going back 50 years have always been ones that pair food and, and drink. And and being in locations where we can be meaningful to the community, be the center of town, be a gathering place, um, that's not new. That goes back 200 years, you know. I mean, that that's a, uh, you know, an age old. And, and so I, I think they just believed that, uh, they had a, a supreme confidence that they were going to be able to produce great beer. They had been doing it as home brewers, and they had a crowd of people that were always interested in what they were doing. So they believed that they were going to be able to grow on the beer side. But but selling beer alone is is not enough to to develop um, you know a business and, and to develop the type of volume necessary to support some of these um, locations and. This is where some people are, are finding challenges today with the cost of um, everything, uh, labor, real estate. Um, it's, it's difficult to make it just on the sales of beer alone. So I, I think it was really, um, you know, with good foresight that they made that decision. And uh, the third partner, um, it was a, a career restaurant guy. He was the food guy. And they, they were buddies, and they, they formed this partnership where he – uh, was the restaurant side and focused on the food and development of the food. And uh, the, the other two partners were focused on, you know, more on the beer. And it all kind of came together as a, uh, a joint concept. And, and that's why we're still here today is that uh, as, as consumers' needs change in life, uh, we can still fill so many of their needs. If people are not drinking as much as they once did, that's okay. You know, they come in and have a have a great beer and, and a nice meal, and, and we fill that niche. If people are looking to, to to sample 15 or 16 great beers and really, you know, expand their palate for beer and, and their knowledge and understanding, we're a great choice for that. So sure. it really has served us quite well. You probably know the answer to this. I, I did once upon a time, but number of craft brews in the United States, craft breweries, oh. I, last I checked, it was over 5,000, but it must be over six or 7,000 by now, right? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't keep track of that. I, um, you know, I'm sitting in one of our breweries, so I, I like to keep track of ours, you know, make sure we're, we're taking care of business. But, uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of um, ebb and flow in that number. There are, there are breweries coming online um, and breweries expanding, but there's also some shrink. Um, you know, people are having a, a, a difficult time, you know, and I, and I think more of the small breweries than – uh, those of uh, the breweries out there like us that have a tap house or have a full service restaurant where they're combining the experience, it's it, it's it's extraordinarily difficult. And as you said, five or six thousand breweries, it feels like at least two thirds of them are canning and putting it on grocery shelves and liquor store shelves. So the level of competition in retail beer, which we play in that arena as well, um, is highly competitive. And um, so it, it's 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 uh, it's not an easy business, 
um, but it, but it can be really rewarding. And, and when you when you're doing it because you love the craft and it's a good business model, boy, there's a lot of reward in that. Yeah, and, and that's really what I was getting to. I mean, this this idea that if you go the retail route, you know, it, it, I've I've seen all the you know the documentaries and everything that they have out there about how to get shelf space. And of course yep. you're up against these really large conglomerates um, that mm -hmm. are very skilled and strategic at how to keep that shelf space. Um, but then, you know, when you are just a brew pub, that's very much, uh, you know, sort of a unique strategy. It's going to keep you, uh, prevent you from growing too much. So there's all sorts of these things that go into it, which is why I love Iron Hill strategy because it seems to me like you guys kind of lead as a restaurant, but I wanted to ask you about that because as you grow, you have over 20 locations now. Um, you know, do you go into a new community as a new restaurant? Do you look for new sites for a restaurant or do you have to consider the brewery part of it first and foremost? How does that work? Yeah, for, for us, we're, we're leading with restaurant. You know, if we're going to sign a lease on six or seven or 8,000 square feet, you clearly don't need that much space. To, to, to run a, brew, a brewery alone. Um, and, you know, with, the, with the, the cost of real estate, you don't generate enough revenue just on the beer alone um, in order to justify um, the space. So, so we start by looking at, um, you know, the, the restaurant competition, the available consumer, um, how it matches up with our more successful locations. But for us, because we do have the brewery, there's a handful of additional metrics that we have to pay attention to that perhaps a straight up restaurant doesn't have to uh, pay attention to. We, you know, we look at what is the brewery competition in the neighborhood. You know, who, who's out there? How do we fit into the marketplace? Um, you know, so that we, we don't go into an extraordinarily crowded neighborhood of breweries and compete on that as well as compete at the restaurant level. Um, so, you know, you know, Columbia here in town is a, an interesting example of that, where there, there are some breweries, but there aren't, uh, we haven't found brewery restaurant competitor. There's breweries with some decent tap house and lighter fare and, you know, beer food. Um, that's a amenity more than it is a focus. So, you know, we, we felt that even though there's a fairly active brewery community, um, we we could carve out our niche as a restaurant with our own beer, and and I've got to tell you the the brewery community um, here in Columbia like welcomed us with open arms. They're like we're so excited that you know you guys are here and somebody of your caliber and size and scope because it's a you know like I said it's a craft. It's it's you know we compete and we're all but we're but there's a lot of pride and when you have. Our, one of our founders is, is still the, the VP of beer, Mark Edelson. He's one of our founders. I work with him every day. And when I walk into a, one of our competitors with him and they start really talking beer and going on a tour, there's a lot of um, healthy respect that he gets for doing this for 27 years. And, yeah. you know, young people that are coming up that are always looking to pick his brain. So, you know, we can carry a little bit of that into a market, but we have to be careful. We, we can't go into a saturated market um, and – we don't we don't walk with you know with with cockiness that says we can go anywhere and we're gonna we're gonna hit a home run. I mean we, we have to be mindful of, a, of several different factors. 
to to that end, um, you know, in the beer community, uh, which before I had kids and I wasn't paying as much attention to my body, just to clarify, I, I was <laughs> the biggest beer fan. I love going to breweries. I was following them. I still love mm-hmm. beer, but, you know, have to <laughs> respect my limits. Um, but, you know, I, what I really gleaned and I lived in North Carolina for 13 years where it, it an ama- amazing beer scene and went to Asheville a lot, which is kind of one of the cradles of beer here in the United States. Um, and I just really loved the collegiality of beer. The community um, was very collaborative. You were seeing a lot of these collaborative um, beer uh, products mm-hmm. that were coming out. Um, but, and so that's why I'm curious. Iron Hill is, for lack of a better word, a chain. You guys have some scale. And you mentioned that kind of coming into a new community and having that respect. Do you have to work on that or do you have to work on being a part of that community at all? Because you see some of these um, craft breweries that get scooped up by InBev. And it's just like, boom, right off the bat, people are like not happy about yeah. it. And so I'm just curious how you kind of walk that line of being a bigger company, but also, you know, maintaining those sort of community roots. Yeah, we, we are um, extraordinarily committed to the communities that we go into. So we are, are looking for partnerships. Um, we have a program called Give 20, where we partner with uh, civic organizations and fundraisers um, and uh, like on a Tuesday night, uh, they invite all of their supporters into the restaurant and we give 20 percent of the of the checks from that group uh, back to the charity. So you know, we're, we're constantly trying to find those partnerships during opening cycles. You know, we partner with the business community, um, you know, with the, with the hospitals. Um, so we, we hire locally. We, we don't bring in a group from. Pennsylvania and plug them into Columbia, South Carolina. So you're here for two years. Um, we, we bring people in from the community and we support the community. Um, unfortunately, when you get to 20 restaurants and you're over six states and, you know, you're at the size and scope that we are, you know, there are some people that, you know, like to put that scarlet letter on your forehead and say, oh, you're a chain. I'm, I, don't, I don't do chains. And, and I think that when I'm successful and say, well, come by, let me buy you dinner, let me buy you a beer. A lot of what we get in return is, oh, I, I never do. Or I, I never would have known that that's what you do. And I think that's a, a supreme compliment. I, I think they they try our beer and they hear us talk about beer with passion. And we're proud to let them t- sample every beer that we're running on tap that day and talk about how they came about. And then, you know, same thing with the food is, is that we're, we're proud of our food program. We're proud of our uh, commitment to hospitality. We have something we call home hospitality, and 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 we we embrace. Um, you know, and I, I think the organization is is. Uh, I think a word that comes to mind for me is that we're thankful for the support that we get from the consumer. So we we want to show it off. We want everybody to give us a shot, and if we're not right for them, you know that's okay. But but you know, give us a shot before you just decide that because we're from somewhere else or we have a lot of locations that we may not be right for you and your community. Um, and, and we that seems to work really well for us in, in that people, you know, after six to 12 months, you don't hear the, you know, that, that five-letter word that you use that makes me cringe, you know. And we, we of course, we're a group of restaurants. We're a chain. You know, we, mm-hmm. we're all named the same. We have the same menu. But we don't have the same beer and we don't have the same personalities. We have a corporate personality, but we certainly have a location personality, and that's driven by the operators. 
So talking about two personalities, you, of course, have a a beer personality, too, a a restaurant personality. As CEO, I imagine you must be having to have that duality always top of mind because you have to innovate with the food, which we'll get into here Mm -hmm. in a little bit. But you have to constantly innovate with beer. I mean, beer, especially thinking about all the the importance of seasonal beers and, you know, Mm -hmm. coming up with some new stuff, especially with all that competition. How do you really respect that duality and, and make sure you have a foot in innovation with beer and a foot in innovation with food? Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of fun actually, um, because we're we're a highly collaborative group, and and everybody um, that sits at every table that I'm at is encouraged to tell me what they think and throw ideas on the table. So the idea for the next marketing idea, the next promotion, um, you know, the next beer, the next style. Uh, last year, you know, we I started to get nervous around dry January, sometime in October. And, um, you know, we, so we introduced, uh, tap, uh, excuse me, hop water, which is, you know, a hop flavored water that we produce, but we didn't can it, bottle it. We do it on, we do it on draft hmm. and nobody that we know about is actually doing a fresh tap product. And then we mix it with other ingredients. We have a hapito, which is a, a mojito. So our non-alcohol beverage line is based in a product that is made with hops. So it has a beer esque, you know, feel to it and mm-hmm. flavor profile um you know that that came out of us just trying to determine what's the best way for us to you know to compete because january of 2022 was or, or excuse me 2023 was a question mark because you know we, we had two years of covid january's right so I, no i didn't know what january i didn't know how strong you know, uh, dry January was because we were we were slow for two Januaries leading into it, right? So, you know, we, we do that with a lot of different things. We do that on the menu. We do that in the beer department. And we have some fabulous uh, brewers that have been around for an awfully long time that that um, their, their whole lives revolve around beer. So they're talking about it and learning about it, and, and they have a peer group. And, um, you know, that, that's how we stay current, and we bring – unique and different ideas to the table and, um, you know, try to always have a couple of things on that people are kind of going, Oh, that's pretty surprising. You know, that that's, you know, a little bit, um, you know, edgier or a little bit, uh, you know, less tried and true. And we're we're trying to, you know, poke the edges a little bit. Yeah. As I mentioned, we're going to get into talking about this recent menu overhaul you guys did. Um, But before I do, I want to talk about you because you have the interesting career of you were a chef and now you are a CEO, which um, outside of those chefs who are their own CEOs, you just don't see that a lot. And so I, I thought that was really interesting. Tell me about your trajectory, um, how you started as a chef, and then how you found your way into this position. Yeah, it, 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 I love to talk about it. It's, it's kind of, a, you know, something that I've enjoyed. I made a decision as a teenager after working in restaurants summers and earning a few bucks here and there. Um, you know, there was a an element of fascination I have with the industry. Um, and I made a decision to go to culinary school. I went to the CIA in upstate New York, the Culinary Institute of America. And uh, the first classmate that I met um, in registration line became my wife, and we're still at it 45 years later. Wow. Um, and, you know, it, it, uh, it just satisfied my, you know, need for creativity, curiosity. Um, but as I, as I, grew uh, my career in the industry, 
um, I realized that I, I felt that I had more to offer. I had more things that I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to, wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be a business person. And you could only go so far, um, you know, 20 and 30 years ago from the kitchen. You know, there was, there was, there was a ceiling. Um, <clears throat> so I began to branch out and, and um, use the, the, the management skills that I developed in the kitchen to other things and, you know, learned uh, about the business side of the business. And at some point I had to make a decision. Was I going to wear a suit or was I going to wear a chef coat? You know, and, and um, I just decided there was a better trajectory for me as an individual um, to, uh, to pursue uh, what I'm doing now. Um, so what I, what I think it does for me, the benefit that I, it, it provides for me is that the team that I, I work with, they don't kind of give me the rolled eyes that, you know, that's just the CEO talking, what does he know? Um, you know, it's all about the numbers, blah, blah, blah. There's a credibility factor. And, and I think with Mark and the beer, there's credibility when he talks to the brewers. Now, Mark's not in the brewery every day anymore. He's administering a massive beer program. Um, but his voice is very loud in the ears of, of everybody. And, and I feel that with my culinary background and my involvement with food, um, that level of credibility exists as well. So it makes me uh, a, a valuable voice at the table as opposed to a voice at the table. Well, and, and as I understand it, you uh, got in the trenches on the recent menu overhaul and you helped be a part of that. Tell me about this. Well, first off, why did you guys decide to overhaul your menu? 30 new dishes, as I understand it. Yeah. Why was that a decision you made? Well, the the menu was presented prior to uh, the pandemic was presented as a, uh, a really uh, uh, more upscale book. It had several pages that had a little bit of the story of the company. It was a little hefty, and, and it evoked a more formal dining experience. During the pandemic, like everybody else, we had to go into survival mode. We, we were, you know, fighting to save the company. You know, and it sounds melodramatic, but in a lot of ways, you had to figure out a way to, um, to operate and, and make ends meet. So we went to a, uh, a two-sided menu card that was a, a, a lot um, fewer offerings, they were easier to execute, really great quality food, but a lot more sandwiches and pizzas and salads and, and handhelds and less um, innovative and creative entrees. Uh, we, did, we didn't have, we had a section on our world menu called uh, healthy selection. So we had some lower calorie, smaller portion items. And, you know, for COVID, you know, that, that era that we went through, it was the right decision. It was the thing to do. But in, in my opinion, when I came in while we were doing that, I wasn't part of the decision to reduce. But when I came in, I felt like what we had done is we had made ourselves, uh, we, had, we had kind of come down to the competition. So there were a lot of restaurants that we came down to. And, and I feel that our white space, our, our, where we belong, is make them strive to come up to us. Hmm. Because there's a lot of organizations that can't or won't or choose not to. Um, so we wanted to take back our white space, which was polished casual, elevated, more elevated cuisine. Now, we still have a lot of those great handhelds and great pizza and great sandwiches because that's beer food. But we also have uh, have placed items on the menu that, that are a little bit more thoughtful, a little more innovative, creative, uh, a little bit more plate appeal. And I felt it was time. It was time to put the pandemic in our in our rearview mirror you know, kind of retake our position um, as, you know, 
something that's different, special, and better um, than than the pack and separate from the pack. Um, and you know, under normal circumstances, if you will, you know, a change, a wholesale change of uh, or an addition of that many items would be um, unheard of. But but because we were accustomed to doing it prior to COVID, and we still have a lot of the team intact that was capable of running those bigger menus. We felt we had a little bit of an edge. Now it wasn't without growing pains, uh, like like can, can like opening a new restaurant isn't without growing pains. But that's that was short lived, and now we're into the routine, and we know what's moving. And and you know it, it, it's interesting because um, the people that supported us through the pandemic are like ecstatic. The people that are just coming back to us since 2019 don't really know what happened. They, they don't know what we were during the the pandemic, so they're coming in and. The book is similar, not not the same style, but similar enough. Um, so to them, we haven't we haven't evolved as much until we tell them the story, and then they 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 really you know study the menu and find some things that weren't on the menu prior. But we were able to bring back enough of the popular items, the, the you know the the items that work really hard for us with the consumer um, onto this larger menu, and, and that's that's why the number of items got to be the size that it was. Got it. Uh, as I said, you know, you, you really helped. Uh, you put on your chef hat and, and helped to develop these new dishes. What were some of the filters that you had in place for this new menu? What were you hoping to accomplish outside of just upscale quality? Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily upscale quality. It was upscale selections because I felt like the quality of the items that we were doing, even though they were more casual, were, were of high quality. Um, but we wanted to maintain our quality. We, we wanted to... Um, we wanted to broaden the, the menu. So, you know, I, I felt like, you know, we had we had sea scallops and we had uh, fish and chips and we had salmon. So, you know, we, we, we added a few shrimp items in the appetizer section or in the, the uh, healthy selection section. Um, we I wanted to accomplish um, getting back to uh, more uh, dishes with beer as an ingredient. So either, uh, you know, beer being incorporated into a dipping sauce for uh, a starter. Um, you know, one of the things that I brought to the menu was a beer brined uh, pork chop. So we're doing a, a maple and stout brine, a 24-hour brine, and then serving it with a tart cherry chutney. Um, doing extremely well, and, and people are enjoying it. But we wanted to reincorporate beer as an ingredient. Um, and and uh, we so we designate those dishes on the menu with a little pint of beer next to it in the column to, to call out. Uh, we wanted to accomplish um, uh, expanding the range of uh, healthy selections, lighter fare, so that, that people didn't feel, you know, overwhelmed uh, by, by portion. They, they could potentially make the decision to come in more frequently, um, you know, because it was, uh, you know, a little bit more approachable. So, I think those were the, the priorities. We, we've always had a fantastic uh, kids' menu. Um, you know, the, the kids' menu has grilled salmon and grilled chicken, and, and, of course, it has burgers and grilled cheese and chicken fingers. But we have the, – the parents give us a lot of credit for a, a healthy balance. So, you know, we, we named that program. We You know, we have a loyalty club called um, King of the Hill, um, we, we named the kids program Kids of the Hill. And um, so when the kids come in, they have a punch card. And if they come in on their fifth visit, 
we do an oversized chocolate chip cookie for the family so the kids actually get to buy mom and dad dessert with their their loyalty rewards. So it's a little That's twist awesome. on the, the loyalty program that makes the kids tell mom and dad where they want to go to dinner. So uh, we, yeah. we, you know, we, we feel like we win with that program and we're creating an engagement at a very early age. So, you know, we're, we're having some fun with those types of things. And then the last piece of it was, um, was the happy hour. What do we do with, um, you know, everybody's competing for consumers at any time of the day. Um, so we, we revamped, uh, you know, a handful of items on the happy hour menu and, and change the offering. And we feel it's vastly improved. And a lot of the items that are now on the happy hour menu are reflective of the menu items. So if somebody comes in and has a six or $7 snack with a beer, that's a happy hour item, you know, it's, it's uh, connected to what we're serving, you know, a, a lot of these new items. So that, that's been a, a big win, but th- those would be the, you know, the, 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 that was the task that was given to the group. Sure. I love all that. Uh, we'll get into unpack a few of these things, but I want to start with this idea of incorporating the beer into the menu. Um, as I understand it, 19 dishes, is that right? 19 mm-hmm. dishes have a beer uh, in them. Um, what sure. I think is so, so great about that is that like beer is so much about story and there's so much of, um, you know, customers really care about the detail of flavors in beer and ingredients in beer. And so it's a really cool way that you can link those two things. But what it made me wonder was, you know, incorporating more beer into your food, how then do you either let beer lead on the food innovation or even let food lead on the beer innovation? Do you plan on doing that more in the future where you kind of play off of these two going forward? Um, you know, it, it, they, they, they work so well in tandem and so much of, uh, you know, beer, beer and wine uh, drinking with food, there, there are beers that do better with certain styles of food. But at the end of the day, um, you know, take the, the craze of hazy IPAs. There are some food items that blend well with a hazy IPA. But if you're not a fan of hazy IPA, that doesn't mean you wouldn't order that food item with a Pilsner or, or the light lager. I mean, so it, it really comes down to, you know, matching people with what they enjoy. Um, so the, the art of uh, one of our commitments to our consumer is we try to find the right beer for the person. So if you came into uh, our bar and sat down and go, wow, you got 16 beers, you know, we're going to ask you, what, what do you normally drink? What do you like? You know, And then we're going to share with you an ounce or two of beers that are similar to what you like. And we'll get a beer in front of you. Right from that, you'll choose one, and now you've got a beer. But then we may say, I know you said you like to drink hazy IPAs, but here, have a little taste of our, you know, our porter, you know, have a little taste of our Vienna red lager. And and it starts to create this conversation between our staff and our guests about the, the nuanced differences of beer. Somebody may drink our light lager for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons is that they're not very um, exploratory by nature, so they're a little cautious and they don't want to spend 5 or $6 on a pint of beer to find out they don't like it. So this taster program opens people's palates. It opens their minds. And when we give somebody a beer, they go, wow, I never knew beer tasted like that. And this is awesome. And then all of a sudden somebody sits down beside them and they're a stranger in the bar and they go, oh, you got to try this beer. It's awesome. We have this advocate for us all of a sudden that because they found it and we were the ones that helped them find it. And there's, there's an element of loyalty and trust that comes with that. So, 
you know, getting back to the original question, it's not like we set out and say, hey, I've got this dish and you got to go make a beer or I've got this beer, you're going to go make a dish. We, we try the beer and, and we find the things on the menu that make sense to go mm-hmm. with it. Now, the only time that we do what you're suggesting is we do do beer dinners. We do five mm-hmm. courses and we match beers with food. So once we know what time of year it is, so, so when we're coming up in the wintertime, we're going to focus on perhaps a line of dark beers that would go with certain foods. Then the chefs will create around what the beers are going to be or vice versa. But but um, there's a beer for everybody and there's a dish on our menu for everybody. Our job is to help you know figure out what puts a smile on their face. Mm. All of that really points to such an experience, um, which, again, I know is very important for the brewery world, but obviously increasingly so for restaurants, too, just creating this great experience. And and, and speaking of that, I want to go back to this concept of loyalty, because obviously loyalty programs so critical to the food service industry today and, um, you know, digital loyalty programs growing in popularity, helping you do more than just create loyalty, really helping you understand your customer a lot better. Um, but in this conversation, um, I, I, I thought about a parallel to Iron Hill, which is Cooper's Hawk. I don't know how much you follow mm-hmm. Cooper's Hawk, but of course, sure. you know, they are a winery and a restaurant. So very similar in that regard. And I've been really impressed with some of the things that Cooper's Hawk has done around sort of creating VIPs out of their customers and being a part of that community. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm wondering how you guys leverage both your restaurant business and your beer business to create some VIPs of the Iron Hill brand. Yeah, as I said earlier, our, our program is called King of the Hill. And, um, you know, it, it's a it's a strong loyalty program where you you earn points and you can redeem your points for um, for for discounts. Uh, but more importantly, there's elements to that membership that um, we do treat the King of the Hill members with with a high level of, of VIP treatment. So first Thursday of every month, we do King of the Hill Appreciation Night. We typically are rolling out and, and tapping a brand new beer, and and they they get you know um, first crack at these new beers. We do a, a taster of food that's designed to go with that new beer. So we encourage all our members to come on Thursdays. We also give them double points um, on those days, so we encourage a visit out of them, and, and they they come in and, and get a little extra reward. Also, King of the Hill members. Um, our um, drink out of a special mug. So you buy a pint of beer, you get a 22-ounce mug. So there's a premium for being a member of, of additional product. Um, and, and when you have that mug, it, it's like, you know, you're, you're wearing a sign that says, I'm a King of the Hill member, and everybody recognizes you and, and engages with you at that level. Other guests come in and go, how do I get that mug? You get to join the membership. You know, you got to join the program. So there's a lot of things we do. We're always trying to find ways to to expand, um, you know, the uh, the connection be- between us and the members. What Cooper's Hawk does, um, their club, you know, uh, provides wine, and they have their wine shop that's part of their restaurants. So we last year, um, it's about 18 months ago now that we launched a beer club, the Iron Hill okay. Beer Club. Um, you know, we have uh, a nice membership where you get a welcome kit and within that welcome kit is some of our you know all-time favorites there, there's also a lot of beer training information development and and there's a journal where you can keep notes about your different beers there's all sorts of um tools you know to to enjoy beer at a higher level 
And, and then that's the welcome kit. And then each quarter we release um, four different beers, two 16-ounce uh, cans of each, um, you know, in, in this cool uh, package. And uh, people come in and they pick up their kit. And they, they get to, to try these beers that the brewery has come up with um, that are not being run on tap. And they're not available to the general public. It's very exclusive. Um, so that that program is available to everybody, but 60% of the members of that program are King of the Hill members where they've extended their their um, benefit, if you will, by, by joining the additional club. So we're, we're hoping to grow that and we continue to refine it, but that, that gives a beer aficionado the opportunity to have access, um, you know, four beers, four times a year. It's, you know, 16 unique different beers, a couple of cans of each. So it's, it really gives them the opportunity to stretch their palate and, and try different things. And, and uh, you know, th- there are people that settle into their style of beer, but they also like to just know what else is going on. Um, so we, we find a lot of uh, people joining that club for a lot of different reasons. Sure. No, I love that idea. That's And it's cool that you're kind of casting two nets. You cast a net, to the, a net to the beer world and, you know, your beer fans can discover your restaurants and you cast a net to your restaurant world and maybe they can sure. discover your beer, which is, which is really cool. Um, kind of going back too to that experience, you know, of helping customers discover beers that they might like. <clears throat> I've had this experience at breweries and it's a remarkable sense of um, – feeling taken care of and and it really does make you feel like you're a friend of the establishment when they take care of you in that way to help you find something you like but i have to imagine that makes hiring so important because you want people especially behind the bar who are going to be that friendly and knowledgeable person on beer um tell me about how hiring is going and whether or not you have other headwinds facing the both the brewery and the restaurant side of things well the the Again, we, we hate to point back to the pandemic, but it's something that we all share sure. and it happened and it changed a lot of uh, our worlds, you know, and, and certainly in the hospitality industry, it's well documented that, um, you know, during the pandemic, people wanted to be further away from other people and they found other ways. Um, and, you know, they they uh, aren't, you know, coming back at the same rate that they left. Right. So it's a highly competitive market. I, I think what's important is that we recognize that um, the the experience is driven by what comes out of the heart, you know, and, and, and if you have the right spirit about what you're trying to do, then we have the 20 plus years of beer experience, the 40 plus years of restaurant experience to be able to teach. So, so we spend a lot of time um, teaching. So somebody that goes through training with us, has to go through the training on all of the food items and all of the steps of service and, you know, our unique process that what we feel is unique, but maybe different from their previous job. But they also have to come up to speed with beer because the the average consumer probably has more knowledge about wine than they do about beer, you know, and, and because, particularly the nuances of 16 different beers. And therefore, it's really easy to impress the guests when you give it to them, but you have to be comfortable enough to be able to start the conversation. So what we do is we teach them how to be comfortable with that. And then eventually we are always going to have the quote unquote experts amongst the staff that are just that much more advanced. We have our brewers that are in the restaurants. I mean, today we're, we're not active in the brewery because I needed the space, but 
you know, typically there would be activity in here. The brewers here, they're, they're working on other things, receiving and shipping and all, all of those types of things. But we have a brewer here. So if somebody comes in and really wants to get into it, we can't lose a server for 10 minutes to one table talking about all of the beers because they have other tables to tend to. So management gets involved, the bartender may get involved. But the goal is for there to be a, you know, a high level of education that happens between us and the consumer for the people that want it, you know, and, and some people, they, they don't want to be learned. They, they know what they like. They want a great beer. They'll have another one. So they, they want great service, but they don't necessarily want an education at the same time. But I think even more important than service and education is that they, they want to be in a high hospitality environment. They want to be with friendly people. And I think the world has kind of confused service and hospitality. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can get you can get efficiency and that's good service. But if you're getting efficiency without any engagement, it can fall a little bit flat. So we, we try to focus on all three elements, you know, education, make sure that we're timely and we're providing the service that warrants the chart, the prices that we choose to charge, as well as, you know, warmth and hospitality and making people feel appreciated. Because right now, everybody that walks through our door could go to five other places. Right. And the fact that they choose us is an honor. So we're honored to have them. Yeah. Oh, it's a great point about service and hospitality. Um, just the people confusing those two. And, and, and the labor issues of the past couple of years really emphasizing that point. Hopefully, I trust we'll come out of this season with a, a learning a, few, a thing or two about hospitality, but but we'll we'll certainly see. Um, so on that front, you know, moving into to the growth of Iron Hill, um, mm-hmm. what does that, what does that look like? It seems like it's been sort of slow and steady, right? Twenty seven years in twenty locations, um, not exactly aiming for. I, I'd imagine you're not aiming for five hundred of these things. Um, so strategic growth, but what do you hope that this brand could ultimately accomplish? Well, I I think that there. Um there's a lot going on with, with respect to, you know, the risk factors and, and where the industry is and where we are and how we fit. Um, we never set out to be hundreds of these because there's an expertise in the brewery as well as an expertise in the kitchen that's necessary. Um, so, you know, at some point, you know, finding that level of talent and, and certainly we've learned our lessons about being further and further away from Pennsylvania or Delaware, you know, I mean, where I'm in here in Columbia, South Carolina, and it's a little bit more difficult to supervise and oversee and, and make sure that people are, you know, following the procedures and, and doing the right thing. So we, you know, we, we slowed down. We actually, we slowed down on deal making during COVID, but we opened four locations during COVID. So we had commitments that we were in the ground um, building and we had to get them open, mm-hmm. um, which was extraordinarily difficult. Um, but um, we, we not knowing what the outcome and the length of the pandemic and what, what the world was going to look like, you know, nobody was making deals and we, we weren't looking at that point. Even developers were just like pausing their projects. So as we are exiting that, where our strategy is to one to two uh, full service restaurants per year. Um, we opened uh, this year, we opened here in Columbia. Next year, we have a project that will come out in the first half of the year. Uh, not really sure what the calendar will give us and the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the supply chain we haven't talked about, but everything is taking significantly longer to get. Sure. So sometimes these projects are dictated by the supply chain and what we can get equipment. Um, but first half of next year, we'll open another Pennsylvania location. 
love to find something that I can open by the end of next year, but it's getting late for that. It, it takes a little bit more time in development. Um, so one to two restaurants per year um, of the 7,000 square foot full service with brewery style. This is kind of what we're focusing on. And mentioning that, then I have to imagine maybe you're thinking of some other prototypes, other models. If you took a page from restaurants uh, playbook and say, ah, well, Jack in the Box is going to do a digital only location here, a drive through only location there. It seems like you guys could do bar only here, restaurant only there. Is that on top of your mind? Restaurant only, we've decided, we made a strategic decision that the beer is too important and we would lose credibility with our base consumer if we didn't have the brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this moment, the, you know, the, the, the current wisdom, uh, you know, that it's always able to be changed. Um, we, we have dabbled. Our, our home office uh, during COVID, we built a production brewery, which is significantly larger than a restaurant brewery because one gift that COVID gave us was, was it advanced our efforts towards uh, canning in the retail market. So we built a large production facility with a canning line. But attached to that is our home office. Um, as well as a tap house, which is a fast casual model with counter service and, and a full bar and the beer. And there, there was uh, thoughts during the pandemic that that would be a growth vehicle where we wouldn't brew, but we would, we would have this, you know, fast casual style model where it would have comfortability. Um, so, so it wouldn't be, you know, uh, reminiscent of a lot of the fast casuals that are all doing very well, but something a little bit hybrided. And, you know, it, it really came down to with the resources that we have and the successes that we've had building full service, I felt like the distraction of building an off-brand and the resources that I would need to bring into the organization to invest in an off-brand, you know, a secondary brand, was, was too much risk not knowing what the world was going to look like, you know, making these decisions a year ago, year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So we've, we put that on the shelf. We still operate the tap house. It's a little bit different. Uh, still committed to quality, runs 25 years instead of the 16 in the stores. Um, and and it, it does a good business, but it it's not being considered at this time um, as a uh, as a, uh, a growth vehicle. Gotcha. Well, nice to have some arrows in the quiver, so to speak, uh, for whenever you we'll might see. need Yeah. We'll see. Well, Chris Westcott, the CEO of Iron Hill, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining me and tell me your story. That was my interview with Iron Hill CEO, Chris Westcott. So what should you learn from this interview? Here are my eight takeaways. My first takeaway is that some of the most successful bar businesses are the ones that pair food and drink. This sounds like a no-brainer. I get it. But it's kind of an important one to point out, I think, in the midst of the craft beverage movement of the past several years. Craft breweries, craft wineries, craft liquor businesses, uh, alcohol, and even non-alcoholic spirits have become kind of a thing, of course, in the last decade or so. And that's great. But it's one thing to have a production facility that tries to create beverages that go on retail shelves. It's another thing to run a successful business. And to have a successful business, you probably need food. So if you're listening to this and you have a craft brewery or some other beverage company and you are trying to be a retail uh, producer, that's great. 
but consider how could you become something more? How can you have multiple channels of service? How could you have food? Chris pointed out in this interview, it goes back hundreds of years, the restaurant and brew pub, the food and the beverage, that has been the central meeting place of communities for hundreds of years. And uh, it makes a great business if you do that, as Iron Hill can attest. My second takeaway is that to combat the negative perception around chains, companies should give each location a distinct personality. I asked Chris about this concept of chains, mostly because uh, knowing a lot about the craft beer world and having a lot of interest in it, I can tell you uh, there is a, a very fierce opinion toward uh, sellouts and a fierce opinion toward sort of the corporate side of things, because especially in beer, there are some major conglomerates involved in this industry, and uh, craft breweries tend to be very fiercely independent. So if you look at a business like Iron Hill, they have 21 locations. They are technically a chain. And I was very curious how that resonated in the beer community and among their customers. And I really appreciated what Chris said about how they overcome this, about how each location has this distinct personality that they are able to create through unique beers. But they also use each location's manager um, to really help drive that personality. And of course, that includes embedding each location into the local community, hiring locally, making sure that every aspect of the business outside of the menu, the aesthetics, the name, the branding, of course, everything else, they really try to incorporate the local. And that helps it so that, as Chris said, four, five, six months on after a location's open, nobody's really concerned if Iron Hill is a chain or not. What they like is that they get good hospitality, good food, and good beverage. My third takeaway is that an executive's hands-on experience brings credibility to innovation. Uh, Chris used to be a chef. I find this really interesting, and that's why I brought it up with him. He went from being a CIA-trained chef to now being CEO of this company, and um, it brings really great credibility to Iron Hill as a des destination for great food um, and because Chris himself got in the kitchen. He got in the trenches to help develop this new menu of 30 uh, new menu dishes. Um, and what I think is so interesting, as he pointed out, is when the CEO is involved in that innovation, having that seat at the table uh, in the R&D process, the whole team can kind of rally around that and be a part of it. Some might see it cynically that a CEO comes and says, here's what we need to do because the you know market data says this, the numbers say that, metrics, whatever. Uh, but as Chris pointed out, for him as a trained chef to come into that process for R&D, it brings that credibility, brings the team in uh, to that process and brings, I think, some more authenticity to what they're doing. And so that really helped them in their innovation process. The same goes, by the way, for their co-founder, Mark Edelson, who's still very involved in the brewing uh, part of the Iron Hill business, that he's been doing that for 27 plus years now. And for him to have uh, that authority in the business around the brewing uh, really helps the whole team kind of get involved and rally around that R&D. My fourth takeaway is that your menu should not just meet the low bar set by your competitors, especially in the bar world. I think there is um, maybe this assumption that the food doesn't have to be as good, that, you know, people come in for a drink. They don't necessarily come in for James Beard award worthy uh, food. But Chris pointed out that when they were developing their menu, they wanted to really strive for a high bar that their competitors had to aspire to. Um, I thought that's really great. You know, you set the bar, really um, try to achieve high quality menu items 
um, especially in a category where they might not be expecting it, because that's a great differentiator. If you're in a crowded category like Iron Hill is with breweries, to kind of come in here with this upscale food, polished casual, I think, as he called it, you know, that's that's a great differentiator, catches customers by surprise, and it becomes another selling point for the business beyond the beer. So if somebody doesn't want a beer, you know, maybe they otherwise would have not considered Iron Hill, but now they do because they know that the food itself is worth the visit. My fifth takeaway is that kids should not be forgotten in your loyalty efforts. Iron Hill has a King of the Hill loyalty program, great name, and I love this part of it. They have Kids of the Hill as a sort of uh, niche offering within that loyalty program where kids themselves can get a punch card. And as Chris said, they can, if they get, uh, I believe it was five punches, fifth visit, they get an oversized chocolate chip cookie to share with the family. I thought this was so creative. It's so simple, but it's really creative too. Uh, You're probably thinking about loyalty. You might have a loyalty program. Of course, parents are the decision makers. They're the ones with the discretionary income. They're important to focus on. And every other grown up, you want that discretionary income. But kids drive the visit for so many families. And so if you incorporate kids into your loyalty program, there's a good chance those kids are going to encourage mom and dad to go to that particular restaurant. And I can tell you as a parent, I do what my kids say, especially when it comes to food. I don't want to go somewhere where they're going to waste the food by not eating it or where they're bored or, you know, whatever. They're not happy. I want to go to a place my kids, I know they'll eat, they'll be happy. Um, Iron Hill incorporates kids into their loyalty program so that that would be the case. I think that's really creative. My sixth takeaway is that by educating your guests on flavors and products, you can build trust and loyalty. Uh, I probably take this for granted, but Iron Hill, Chris talked about how at Iron Hill, the bartenders, the servers are really encouraged to educate guests around flavors of the beer in particular. Um, and and I, I see this at bars all the time. I've experienced this at bars all the time. But I don't really think about how important that part of it is that, uh, you know, Chris pointed out, if a bartender um, gets to know you a little bit and they suggest a beer maybe you wouldn't otherwise have tried or maybe you've never heard of, and then you like it, how great do you feel that that bartender or that server could identify that maybe you would like this thing. It it helps to build a relationship with the business. And uh, Chris says this is a a strategy that they employ at Iron Hill, that their bartenders and servers really try to teach the customers about the beer flavors, what they pair well with on the menu, um, and try to get to know the customer and their likes and dislikes to point them in the right direction. And um, this, of course, makes hiring hard and training hard because you really have to find the right person who knows how to do that. You have to educate them before they can educate your customers. But if you pull that off, if you can get your, your employees to a place where they can educate the customers, how cool is that, that you can really build that trust with your guests and bring them into that process um, in a way that, again, develops loyalty beyond points could ever do. They feel like they're a part of the family by learning all about it. Iron Hill has a taster program that I think is really uh, uh, kind of aligns with this idea of teaching your guests how to appreciate your products. And, um, and and that's something else to consider. How do you bring your customers further into your product, your menu, your offerings, and, um, and get them to be a part of the family? Uh, my seventh takeaway is that your VIP guests should be able to take the brand 
home with them. Uh, so loyalty programs, of course, being popular today, uh, you, you, of course, want to have that. You want to have your app or whatever it is that is going to track points and loyalty for your customers. But beyond the digital part, the punch card, whatever that is, what is something physical that they can take home with them? What is something extra that makes them feel even more like a very important person. Uh, for Iron Hill, it is a mug. You get a mug as part of their loyalty program. But then you can also sign up for the uh, beer club, which you get beer on a regular basis. You get this welcome kit that has a journal. I think that's really cool that you can learn more about the beer, take some notes about it. And again, it brings them deeper into that process so that they feel like they're, again, a part of the family of Iron Hill. Um, think about this for your own loyalty program? What are some ways you can go behind the digital, beyond the digital, I should say, and um, in incorporate some other assets? Uh, when, maybe that's a t-shirt or other merchandise. Maybe that's something incorporated with a menu like Iron Hill does. But whatever it is, tr consider some other ways to um, send the brand home with your guests so that they feel like a VIP because, again, it really builds that loyalty. My eighth and final takeaway is that consumers want hospitality, not service. Don't confuse the two. This is a really great point that Chris made about the fact that service is, you know, the, the baseline of what customers expect. You bring them their food. There is a transaction. You answer any questions, lead them to their table, lead them out, whatever. But hospitality is doing that all with a smile, doing that while building the relationship, doing that while really rolling out the welcome mat for every customer. Um, Chris had this great line where he said, if you're getting efficiency without engagement, it can fall a little flat. I love that efficiency versus engagement. We've been talking about efficiency all year. Yes, efficiency is important. Yes, the transaction matters. Yes, you have to move people through and, and really um, you know, provide service. But to set yourself apart from the rest, to create an experience that people want to come back to, focus on hospitality. That's what Iron Hill is doing, and clearly it is working. Those are all my takeaways for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to Takeaway wherever you listen to podcasts and leave your feedback. You can also email me at sam.okus at informa.com. Thanks again, and talk to you next week.